Chapter 6 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 6 Education. This chapter begins with two quotations, the first by Confucius, There being education, there will be no distinction of classes. The second by Wendell Phillips, Education is the only interest worthy the deep controlling anxiety of the thoughtful man. The fair fabric of justice raised by Numa, says Plutarch, passed rapidly away because it was not founded upon education. No true reason can be given for the decay of everything good in a state. Upon no foundation but that of popular education can man erect the structure of an enduring civilization. This is the basis of all stability and underlies all progress. Without it, the state architect builds in vain. Whether the sturdy pilgrim fathers were conversant with the conceptions of the Greek thinkers who were filled with the projects for universal education, whether they were versed in the speculations of Plato's Republic or Aristotle's politics, is doubtful. But it is certain that they were imbued with the spirit which animated Luther and Knox in regard to the education of the masses. The true parent of modern education was the Reformation, for did not Luther himself say that if he were not a preacher, he should be a teacher, as he thought the latter the more important office? John Knox demanded a public school for every parish in Scotland, and it was the Protestant state of Germany that first undertook the education of the whole people. Fortunate indeed for the world that the demand for religious freedom necessarily involved the priceless boon of secular education. The preamble to the Massachusetts School Law of 1642 tells the story, quote, It being one chief project of that old deluder, Satan, to keep men from the knowledge of the Scriptures, as in former times, keeping them in an unknown tongue, so in these latter times, by persuading from the use of tongues, so that all at least the true sense and meaning of the original might be clouded and corrupted with false glosses of deceivers, and to the end that learning may not be buried in the grave of our forefathers, in church and commonwealth, the Lord assisting our endeavors, it is therefore ordered by this court and authority thereof that every township within this jurisdiction after the Lord hath increased them to the number of fifty householders, shall then forthwith appoint one within their town to teach all such children, as shall resort to him to read and write, whose wages shall be paid either by their parents or masters of such children, or by the inhabitants in general by way of supply, as the major part of those who order the prudentials of the town shall appoint provided that those who send their children be not oppressed by paying much more than they can have them taught for in other towns." End quote. In 1700, 
the state of Connecticut enacted its system of public instruction, which embraced the following as its first obligation, an obligation on every parent and guardian of children, not to suffer so much barbarism in any of their families as have a single child or apprentice unable to read the holy word of God and the good laws of the colony, and also to bring them up to some lawful calling or employment under a penalty for such offense. The right of private judgment presupposes a judgment to judge with. This presupposes knowledge, and knowledge is the result of education. Hence the first duty of the state, as the father saw it, was to educate the children thereof. Our pilgrim fathers carried with them from their old to their new home a realizing sense of the importance of this subject. It may well be said of them, as Froude has said of the Scotch, with them education was a passion. For scarcely had they got roofs over their heads in the forest before we find them establishing public schools and appointing schoolmasters. Here is a copy of one of the earliest records of Boston. The 13th of ye second month, 1635. It was then generally agreed upon that our brother, Philemon Purmount, shall be entreated to become schoolmaster for ye teaching and nurturing of all children with us. Next year, only six years after the first settlement of Boston, four hundred pounds was appropriated toward the establishment of a college. The sum exceeded the entire tax levy of the colony for the year. Eleven years later, the state of Massachusetts made the support of schools compulsory and education universal and free. And we read that, quote, In 1665, every town had a free school, and if it contained over 100 families, a grammar school. In Connecticut, every town that did not keep a school for three months in the year was liable to a fine, end quote. Such was the policy adopted by the men of the people who sought these northern shores that they might establish and enjoy the blessings of civil and religious liberty. Far different was the policy of the aristocratic element with which Virginia was cursed. Twenty years after the establishment of free schools by law in New England, Sir William Berkeley, governor of Virginia, wrote, I thank God that there are no free schools or printing and I hope we shall not have them these hundred years, for learning has brought heresy and disobedience and sects into the world, and printing has divulged them, and libels against the best government. God keep us from both. Even in the early part of the 18th century, says Sir Charles Lyell, quote, there was not one bookshop in Virginia, and no printing presses, though, there were several in Boston, with no less than five printing offices, a fact which reflects the more credit on the Puritans, because in the same period, 1724, there were no less than thirty-four counties in the mother country, Lancashire being one of the number, in which there was no printer. Thus are the ideas and methods of democracy and aristocracy contrasted. The former is ever seeking the education of the masses. The latter, from its very nature, is ever seeking to restrain education to the few, 
well knowing that privilege dies as knowledge spreads. It was death to teach a slave to read. The instinct which led the slaveholder to keep his slave in ignorance was a true one. Educate a man, and his shackles fall. Free education must be trusted to burst every obstruction which stands in the path of the democracy towards its goal, the equality of the citizen. And this it will reach quietly and without violence, as the swelling sapling in its growth breaks its guard. Ballots, not bullets, is the motto of educated republicanism, and obedience to law its fundamental requirement. Owing to the incompleteness of early censuses, it is not easy to ascertain the exact condition of education in 1830, but contemporary writers sometimes make estimates which are accessible. From these we learn that in 1831 the proportion of school children to population in America was 15 percent, or double the European average, and second only to that of Prussia. It would have been as high as 22 percent, much beyond the Prussian average, but for the slave states where the Negro slaves were not educated. In 1832, a European visitor said, quote, The state of New York stands foremost on the list of school children. It counts in the proportion of one to three and one-half of the number of its inhabitants. The New England states, one to five. Pennsylvania and New Jersey, one to eight. Illinois, one to thirteen. Kentucky, one to twenty-five, and so on. By way of comparison, I may just mention that Württemberg has one to six, Bavaria and Prussia, one to seven, Scotland, one to ten, France, one to seventeen and one-half, Russia, one to three hundred and sixty-seven, The condition of the country in regard to education in 1834 is summed up by a contemporary as follows, quote, In the New England states, there are not less than 500,000 children educated at the common schools, and in 1830, there were 473,508 white persons in these states between the ages of 5 and 15, and allowing for the increase of population, we may say that the benefits of elementary education are universally diffused. In the states to the south and west of New York, however, there is reason to believe that there were 1,210,000 children without the knowledge and benefits of education. End quote. Many English readers will no doubt be surprised to learn that the general government has nothing whatever to do with the education of the people. This duty belongs to the different states and is fulfilled by them, each in its own way. A system of public education is in operation in every state and territory in the Union, and 28 out of the 38 states have provided normal schools for the training of teachers. There are 98 of these institutions. All have recognized the duty of providing for every child a free common school education. And in furtherance of this end, the general government has frequently made liberal grants of public lands to the various states. Even as early as the Continental Congress, the question of affording aid to education was discussed, and in 1785, immediately after the close of the War of Independence, 
Congress passed an act reserving for school purposes the sixteenth section of each township in the public land of the territories. When the territories were admitted as states, they were made trustees of these lands. Under this and subsequent laws, twelve of the new states came into the Union possessed of magnificent educational endowments. In 1848, Congress granted an additional section in each township for the same purpose. Nearly 68 million acres of land have been given in this manner to 27 states. Further special grants of land have, from time to time, been made for the creation of state universities, and in 1862 each state received a grant either of land within the state or an equivalent amount of scrip for the purpose of establishing and endowing schools of agriculture and the mechanical arts. The total amount of land hitherto devoted by the general government to educational endowments exceeds 78 millions of acres, an area greater than the whole of England, Scotland, and Ireland combined. Throughout the history of the Republic, great liberality has been displayed in the grants for educational purposes. The people who cannot be induced to make the salaries of officials half as large as those of the officials of the petty powers of Europe, nevertheless urge their representatives to vote millions upon millions for educational purposes. The ratio of money spent on the army to that spent on education is in startling contrast to that of Europe. America is the only country which spends more upon education than on war or preparation for war. Great Britain does not spend one-fourth as much, France not one-eleventh, or Russia one-thirty-third as much on education as on the army. Here are the figures which the patient democracies of Europe will do well to ponder. How long yet will men, instigated by royal and aristocratic jealousies, spend their wealth and best energies upon means for slaughtering each other? Chart. Annual Expenditures on Armaments and Education by Country United Kingdom Armaments, £28,900,000 Education, £6,685,000 France Armaments, £35,000,000 Education, £3,200,000 Germany, armaments, 20 million pounds. Education, 6,900,000 pounds. Russia, armaments, 33 million pounds. Education, 1 million pounds. Austria, armaments, 13,400,000 pounds. Education, 2,900,000 pounds. Italy, armaments, 18,900,000 pounds. Education, 1,100,000 pounds. Spain, armaments, 6,300,000 pounds. Education, 1,200,000 pounds. Other European states, armaments, 8,300,000 pounds. Education, 2,100,000 pounds. Total, Armaments, 163,800,000 pounds. 
Education, 24,085,000 pounds. United States, armaments, 9,400,000 pounds. Education, 18,600,000 pounds. Thus, for every pound spent by Great Britain for the education of her people, more than four pounds are squandered upon the army and navy. The Republic reverses this practice and spends nearly two pounds upon education for every one spent for war. Truly has Longfellow written, Were half the power that fills the world with terror, were half the wealth bestowed on camps and courts, given to redeem the human mind from error, there were no need of arsenals nor forts. The warrior's name would be a name abhorred, and every nation that should lift again its hand against a brother, on its forehead would wear forevermore the curse of Cain. While the New England states fully embraced the idea of free and universal public instruction very early in their history, the great state of New York adjoining them only reached this height after a struggle of many long years. It was not until 1851 that the popular vote sanctioned the principle that the state must educate all its children. The state now spends 11 millions of dollars per annum, more than 2 million sterling, upon education. A free college in the city of New York is filled with the best students from the public schools. A free normal college provides higher education for female teachers, and in every part of the state, normal schools produce great numbers of accomplished teachers. The amounts expended upon education by each state per capita of school population range from $18.70, 3 pounds, 15 shillings, in Nevada, to 85 cents, 3 shillings, 6 pence halfpenny, in North Carolina, and 81 cents, 3 shillings, 4 pence halfpenny, in New Mexico. It is an interesting fact that the states which spend most porata on education are not the old settled states of New England, but the young vigorous states of the Northwest. Thus Iowa spends almost double in proportion to its wealth what Massachusetts does, and Idaho, not yet admitted as a state, excels all the states in this respect. Wisconsin, Minnesota, Kansas, and Nebraska are all far in advance of the New England states. The southern states rank last, though not so far behind as might be expected. Indeed, several of them, such as Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, and South Carolina, exceed the average of the New England states. The United States have not escaped entirely the religious difficulty in this march to universal free education, but fortunately, opposition to the system has been confined to only one sect, the Roman Catholic, all others having united in giving to it enthusiastic support. The dissatisfied Catholics have not been strong enough even in the city of New York, where they are much more powerful than elsewhere in the Union, to disturb the complete exclusion of dogmatical teaching which everywhere characterizes the public schools of America. A few verses from the Bible are generally read without comment in the schools as a public exercise once each day. 
At this no one takes offense, and everyone, with the exception of the Roman Catholics, is satisfied, as all feel that the public school is not the proper place for religious instruction. So vitally important to the child is education considered throughout America that not even the rigid discipline of the Roman Catholic Church is strong enough to restrain Catholic parents from sending their children to the public schools. Remonstrances against this soul-destroying practice were recently made simultaneously in all the Catholic churches of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and so vehement were the denunciations hurled at offenders that the Commercial Gazette had a thorough canvas made to determine to what extent Catholics were availing themselves of the public schools. Statements were asked from the principals of 56 schools, and replies received from 24. The others declined from conscientious scruples to inquire into the religious beliefs of their scholars. Most significant this of the complete toleration which prevails in this country upon the subject of religion, and surely not without value as proving to Britain how slight is the religious difficulty, if it be a difficulty at all, in the path of free secular education. For this reason some of the strongest Catholic districts were unreported. Nevertheless, it was clearly proven that one-half as many Catholic children attend the public schools as the denominational schools, notwithstanding the fulminations of the priests and the command of the Vicar of Christ, the Supreme Pontiff, which is quoted in the recent attack in Pittsburgh against the godless public schools. I was so much surprised at the result here stated that before quoting it I applied to the highest authorities for confirmation. Among them, to my distinguished fellow countryman, Mr. William Wood, who has long been one of the commissioners of education in the city of New York, and he not only affirms that the result of Pittsburgh may be taken to represent the average situation throughout the country, but that in New York and other large cities, Catholic children receive their education even in greater numbers side by side with Protestant children in the state schools. So let the Church continue to issue its mandates against free, godless education in the Republic. The Pope, being infallible, must be consistent, and this is his nineteenth-century bull against the comet, and will probably be as efficacious as the older one. The public schools are supported mainly by direct taxation, and no tax is so willingly paid as the school tax. In 1880, Eighty-two and a half million dollars, sixteen and a half million sterling, were raised for schools, four-fifths by direct tax and the other fifth being derived from rents or sale or proceeds of school lands. Following the public schools, in which every child is entitled to receive a common school education free of expense, we come to the various institutions for higher education, with which the state has nothing to do. These are mainly private schools, and depend for maintenance upon fees from scholars. Some of them are authorized by state legislative enactments to grant decrees and diplomas, but as the standards of states differ greatly, a school entitled in Tennessee to call itself a university or a college might not rank as either in Massachusetts. We must therefore caution our readers not to be misled by figures which show so many more colleges and universities in the former than in the latter. Schools higher than primary public schools in the United States number 3,650, 
and contained nearly half a million students. Of these, 364 are universities and colleges, with 59,594 students. The number of public schools in the country is estimated at 177,100, making in all 179,884 schools, and the army of teachers number 273,000, of whom 154,375 are women. A glorious army, this. Let me quote from the report which the Reverend Mr. Fraser made to the British government some years ago. Quote, American teachers are self-possessed, energetic, and fearless, admirable disciplinarians, firm without severity, patient without weakness, their manner of teaching lively, and their illustrations fertile. No class could ever fall asleep in their hands. They are proud of their position and fired with a laudable ambition to maintain the credit of the school. A little too sensitive of blame and a little too greedy of praise, but a very fine and capable body of workers in a noble cause. End quote. The position of America in regard to reading and writing in 1880 is this. Out of 36 and three-quarter million persons of 10 years of age and over, nearly 5 million, or 13 percent, are unable to read, and 6 million and a quarter, or 17 percent, are unable to write. In 1870, the percentage was 16 and 20 percent, respectively, so that the march against ignorance is still onward. The gain in the number able to write is significant. For every thousand inhabitants who could not read in 1870, there were but 853 in 1880. For every thousand who could not write in 1870, there were but 826 who could not do so in 1880. In this improvement, the colored population participated to almost as great an extent as the white which encourages the friends of the race to look hopefully to their future. A satisfactory future is the great reduction of illiteracy in the foreign-born element. For of every thousand foreign-born who were illiterate in 1870, there were but 759 in 1880, which testifies to the well-known fact that the character of recent immigration has been far higher than ever before. Of course, the native illiterate are found mainly in the southern states and among the colored people. Of colored people more than 10 years of age in 1880, no less than 70% were unable to write, while of the native-born white, southern as well as northern, there were only 8 and 7 tenths percent in this class. In the southern states taken as a whole, not more than 60 out of every 100 inhabitants over 10 years of age can write. That the condition of the colored population is due to circumstances and not to any inherent lack of capacity or disposition, we have the best evidence in the fact that while 75 and 6 tenths percent of this class in the southern states are illiterate, the northern states of the North Atlantic group represent an average illiteracy as low as 23 and 2 tenths percent, or not one-third as great. Throughout the whole North, where the mass of the people reside, it may be said that the native-born American, male and female, can read and write. 
for the percentage returned as unable to do so does not exceed an average of 5%. Five persons in every hundred, most of whom, no doubt, are mentally incapacitated for instruction. If we compare the number of white males of 21 years and over who cannot read or write with those of 10 years and over, we see at once how education has advanced in recent years. The percentage of all the states rises a grade in every instance when those educated within the 10-year period only are considered, those showing between 2 and 5% of the latter, show between 5 and 10% when the 21 years class is embraced. In other words, the children of today are more generally educated than those of the preceding decade. The average percentage of white males of 21 years and over who cannot read and write is 7 and 8 tenths. Of white females to total white females is 11%. Only three more women than men in every hundred, showing that women in the Republic are not far behind. In 1870, the percentages were as follows. Male illiterates, 18 and 26 hundredths percent. Female illiterates, 21 and 8 hundredths percent. The decrease of illiteracy in 10 years is one of the most surprisingly clear marks of the country's progress. Schools for the superior education of women numbered in 1880 227 and contained 25,780 students. In 1870, there were but 175 such schools and 11,288 students. These statistics show a rate of increase far beyond that of any other branch and prove how rapidly women are being advanced in education. The average wages per month paid teachers in the public schools vary greatly in the different states. Nevada pays her female teachers $77, 15 pounds, 8 shillings, and her male teachers $101.47, 20 pounds, 5 shillings, and 10 pence, which is the highest. Massachusetts, $30.59, 6 pounds, 2 shillings, and 4 pence, and $67.54, 13 pounds, 10 shillings, and 2 pence. South Carolina, $23.89, 4 pounds, 15 shillings, 7 pence, and $25.24, 5 pounds, 1 shilling. The ratio of average attendance to school population by states in 1880 ranged from 64 in Maine to 19 in Louisiana, and the average number of school days from 54 in North Carolina to 192 in New Jersey. As we have already seen, the public schools of America cost in 1880 over 16 million sterling. This is very unequally distributed among the states. Virginia City, Nevada, spends most per head upon her scholars, namely $34.81, almost seven pounds. Then comes Sacramento, California, with $34, six pounds, 16 shillings, per head. The city of Boston, Massachusetts, ranks third, with $33.73, six pounds, 15 shillings, per head, which is more than three times that expended by London. While the American living is ever mindful of the cause of education, he does not forget it at death, and often bequeaths large sums to his favorite school or college. 
In 1880, such benefactions exceeded five and a half millions of dollars, one million one hundred thousand pounds. Now let us just pause a moment to ask how monarchical and aristocratic institutions affect the minds of wealthy people in this respect. Great Britain is, next to her child, the richest country in the world. Her aristocracy as a class is by far the richest in the world. There is none comparable to it in the Republic. But who ever heard of a nobleman leaving large sums for the higher education of his fellows, or indeed for any public use whatever? A physician in London, Sir Rasmus Wilson, dies and leaves a hundred thousand pounds, half of his entire fortune, to the College of Physicians and Surgeons to be used to extend its usefulness. Who can point to a member of the aristocracy who has risen beyond his own family, which is only another name for himself? The vain desire to found or maintain a family or to increase its revenues or estate is the ignoble ambition of a privileged order. What they give or leave as a class, with few exceptions, is nothing to nobody. We can say of the average peer, the wretch concentred all in self, living shall forfeit fair renown, and doubly dying shall go down to the vile dust from whence he sprung, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. The few illustrious exceptions, all the more notable for their rarity, are wholly insufficient to redeem their order from the just reproach of grasping from the too indulgent state all that can be obtained, and using it only for aims which end with self. They can justly plead, perhaps, the influence of example in the highest quarters, where surely better things might have been expected. Even thrones hoard for self in these days. But his is but the legitimate outcome of the monarchical and aristocratic idea. No fair fruit is to be expected from privilege. The Republic has a remarkable list of educational institutions bestowed upon it by its millionaires, among them Johns Hopkins University, Cornell University, Vanderbilt University, Packer Institute, Vassar College, Wellesley College, Smith College, Bryn Mawr College, and the Stevens Institute. These have each cost several millions of dollars, Johns Hopkins alone having an endowment of five million dollars, one million pounds, the gift of one man. Only a few days ago the announcement was made that Leland Stanford, president of the Central Pacific Railway and at present United States Senator from California, has transferred property valued at seven million dollars to establish a worthy university on the Pacific Coast. The ratio of population to students enrolled by classes of institutions in 1880 shows that one out of every five attend the public schools, while secondary education is received by one out of every 455, college and university education by one out of every 842, commercial and business education by one out of every 1,848, a scientific education by one out of every 4,325, a theological education by one out of every 9,568, 
and a legal education by one out of every sixteen thousand and one. Such is the record of the educational establishments of all kinds in the country, as given by the census of 1880. The moral to be drawn from America by every nation is this. Seek ye first the education of the people, and all other political blessings will be added unto you. The quarrels of party, the game of politics, this or that measure reform, are but surface affairs of little moment. The education of the people is the real underlying work for earnest men who would best serve their country. In this, the most credible work of all, it cannot be denied that the Republic occupies the first place. It is, and ever has been with all Americans, as with Jefferson, quote, a system of general instruction which shall reach every description of our citizens from the richest to the poorest. As it was the earliest, so shall it be the latest of all the public concerns in which I shall permit myself to take an interest. End quote. Here speaks the inspired voice of triumphant democracy, which holds as its first duty the universal education of the people. Of all its boasts, of all its triumphs, this is at once its proudest and its best. We say to the old monarchies of the world, Behold, democracy produces as its natural fruit an educated people. End of chapter 6